Good? Yes, sir. All right. Ready? Let's do it. Okay. So we're back again for another episode of The Intervention. This time, I'm kind of going to lead. I We had a bit of a change of plan. I was going to do a story about Jamaica, but as I uh, read through it, I the the importance of the East India Company became even more relevant. So we figured we'd do... This is obviously going to could cover about half of the podcasts I do, if not more, if we really wanted. Just to. the background on the East India well, Company. Just the, yeah. Well, you could do so much on these. Yeah, assholes. multiple episodes. So today I'm just going to read an article, which is from the Financial Times, which is you know immediately probably not going to jive with what we think, but it is written by a guy called uh, William Darrymple, I believe his name is, and he wrote a book called The Anarchy, which I did enjoy about the East India Company and specifically in India, which was good. And it touches on some of the things in this article. So this article is called Lessons for Capitalism from the East India Company. So most of you that listen to this can probably already see a bit of a problem. Um, How a motley city gathering morphed into history's most rapacious corporation and why its story matters today. Because we need a kinder, gentler capitalism. (laughs) I don't think they were that. They were certainly not that. Got to figure out that this is not kind and gentle. And it never has been and never will be. That's right. All right. So let's kick this off. Just interrupt me whenever you want to riff on something or talk about it anymore. So by the beginning of the 19th century, the East India Company had become, as one of its directors admitted, an empire within an empire with the power to make war or peace anywhere in the East. So it's, we're going to call this the uh, EIC from now on, or I might just call it the company. Yeah, yeah, just keep it simple. Yeah. The company had created a vast and sophisticated administration and civil service in India and built much of London's docklands. Its annual spending in Britain, around $8.5 million, equaled about a quarter of total British government annual expenditure. No wonder the company now referred to itself as the grandest society of merchants in the universe. <laughs> It's lofty, man. Yeah. Pretty yeah, pretentious. Yeah. Its private armies were larger than almost all nation states, and its power encircled the globe. Indeed, its shares were a kind of global reserve currency. As the par- parliamentarian Edward Burke wrote, the constitution of the company began in commerce, ended in empire. Remembering that book that, because I read that too, The Anarchy. Yeah. I'm sure he's going to get into it, but he's framing it as kind of like, separate from empire like the empire within the empire not that it's separate but like it was just so intertwined with the british government right in terms of yeah i think initially being like stakeholders and things like that and actually like you know even when they needed to rein it back a little bit because of the excesses which i'm sure he'll get into a little bit but like there was always a really firm level of you know interaction between government and the company it seemed like right or maybe that came on later i I think it. I think initially it was probably not supposed to be that way. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, they basically just became the arm of the government's colonial enterprises. Well, right, because eventually, I mean, to bury the lead, India was subsumed into the empire through all the work that the EIC had done. Yeah. Prior. That's right? right. Yeah. I mean, they mentioned he mentions here at one point, which I'll I'll talk about obviously, or I'll read is it. You know, one of the things the the Americans feared the most after uh, the Boston Tea Party was that Britain would unleash the company on them. The company was scarier than the British army. I think, yeah. I mean, that's basically, <laughs> yeah. as it said, their army was bigger than any other nation state's army. It's crazy. Insane. Yeah. 
It's also interesting because like there was three, like there was a French East India company, there was a Dutch, Dutch East, East India, India company, company, right? Yeah. But I guess Britain took the took the cake in terms of the biggest and one. We are the, we're the best. So. <laughs> Suck it. Little British exceptionalism. Suck it, Netherlands. Anyway, uh, the company was also the ultimate model and prototype for many of today's joint stock corporations. Mm-hmm. And he goes into about how, how it kind of came about. So in England, unlike historical buildings, there's like a blue plaque on a lot of them. And it says like who lived there and what the, the importance of the, comp- of, of the building. But it says here, no blue plaque or memorial today marks the site of its former headquarters on Leadenhall Street in the city of London. And the city of London, if you don't know, is kind of like, so there's London and then the city of London is, is the, like the financial center of London. Okay. It's called the city of London, which lies buried beneath the foundations of Richard Rogers' glass and steel Lloyd's building. But anyone seeking a monument to its legacy need only to look around. For the company remains history's most ominous warning about the potential for the abuse of corporate power and the insidious means by which the interests of shareholders can seemingly become those of the state. You sound familiar to anything we've talked about previously? <laughs> it's almost like it's, you know, just the same system. Yeah. I mean, we taught everybody, man. When people voice fears today about the power of corporations and the way global companies can find ways around the laws and the legislatures of individual nation states, it is no accident they sound like 18th century commentators such as Horace Walpole, who decried the way the company wealth had corrupted parliament. And he said, quote, what is England now? But a sink of Indian wealth filled with nabobs with a Senate sold and despised. And a nabob is, there's a few different meanings. Um, and I think what he's referring to here is basically a person who's come back from India rich. Okay. So that kind of goes into today's like lobbyists that can just buy the Senate and buy, you know, buy politicians. It's, it's the same type yeah, of thing. Or Dick Cheney coming back from, or Halliburton coming back from Iraq with you know, all these people. Yeah. Much richer. Yeah. And so to get into lobbying for just as the lobbying of the Anglo Persian oil company was able to bring down the government in Iran and the United fruit that of Guatemala in the 1950s, just as ITT lobbied to bring down Salvador uh, Allende's Chile in the seventies. And just as ExxonMobil has lobbied the U S more recently to protect its interests in Indonesia, Iraq, and Afghanistan. So the company was able to call in the British Navy to enhance its power in India in the 18th century. So again, all stuff we have covered or will cover. Yeah. Again, like it just, people try to separate like the corporate world from the government. Like, you know, I always go back to this theme that the values and rights that are enshrined in the way like our governments are set up inherently protect these rights of these companies because in the US and, you know, other places like, by law, a corporation in terms of judicial like scrutiny is a fucking person. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like they're set up to be protected by government. Right. And this is a good point as well. And he says, and just as Facebook today can employ Nick Clegg, the former UK deputy prime minister, so the company was able to buy the services of Lord Corn- Cornwallis, who surrendered Yorktown to Washington. The company, in other words was not just the world's first great multinational corporation. It was also the first to run amok and show how large companies can become more powerful and sometimes more dangerous than nations or even empires. I think that's a good point. I mean, again, he's, he's, he's listed a bunch of things, but I think that Facebook point is, is a good one. You know, how many former 
health secretaries go and work for an insurance company or 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 all this you know they all and they're all in the pocket of like their lobbyists yeah. and everything else or ceos going on to be like a secretary of defense or you know what i mean or a yeah. board of directors yeah member like how me. many like uh what's the big uh arms company why is it raytheon yeah like how many raytheon guys i mean trump had a few raytheon guys in sure his. it just never ends but anyway um so he goes into a little bit about the company now. So the history of the company began on September 24th, 1599. While William Shakespeare was mulling over a draft of Hamlet in his house downriver from the Globe in Southwark, a motley group of Londoners gathered barely 20 minutes walk north across the Thames in a rambling half-timbered building off Moorgate Fields. It was, and I think this is interesting, it was an unusually diverse cross-section of Eliz- Elizabethan London, that came that day to the Founders Hall. At the top of the social scale, hung with his golden chain of office, there was the stout figure of the Lord Mayor himself, Sir Stephen Soam. Accompanying him was the stovepipe-hatted Sir Thomas Smythe, a former auditor of the City of London, who had made a fortune importing currants from the Greek islands and spices from Aleppo. A few years earlier, Auditor Smythe had helped form the Levant Company as a vehicle for his trading voyages. This meeting was his initiative. Okay. Besides these portly pillars of the city of London were many less exalted merchants hopeful of increasing their fortune, fortunes as well as a scattering of ambitious and upwardly more mobile men of more humble estate, whose professions the notaries dutifully noted down grocers, drapers, haberdashers, a cloth worker, a vinator, a leather seller, and a skinner, not to mention a few scarred soldiers and bearded mariners who described themselves in the polite Elizabethan euphemism as privateers. So, pirates. Yep. So, like, this is like the British dream. Go, you know, I seek mean, your I, fortune abroad or whatever. Right? Yeah, right. and I think the interesting thing is it wasn't just, like, lords that formed this, right? It, right. Was, it was anybody who, you know capital was in the front of their minds anybody that wanted to get rich time to get their hands dirty yeah Yeah. kill a few indian people a few indian people a few africans yeah a few whoever is not white (laughs) so to get like a little theoretical here just because i think we talked about imperialism in like the context that we understand it now um as you know again when we're talking about in the 1900s the 2000s in the like more Leninist sense where the export of capital is still, you know, dominant. I think at this point in time, we're still talking about a time period where we're still in many ways probably transitioning. And I think England was probably a little bit ahead of the rest of the world in this sense, but we're transitioning still in some stages from feudalism to capitalism. Yeah. And he goes into why the British had to do this. And right. it, it's interesting. The, the reason, and a lot of it has to do with, with religion as well and the fact that britain was an agricultural nation up to this point yeah and like but there's this whole concept just to continue on the theoretical vein for a second of primitive accumulation right like in the in the marxist sense because at this point like they're still like bringing in material right Mm -hmm. like exporting capital is not predominant at this point in time it's about bringing in and it's still mercantile Right. Yes. It's still mercantile in a yeah. lot of ways, but it's like the genesis of the capitalist mode of production. So it's mercantilism. It's bringing in wealth into the country, right, to ultimately like build the capitalist machine. So just like that's where we're at and like in this stage of time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, and we'll get into that. But yeah, I, I think 
you know, you could probably view this company like we've kind of, he kind of highlighted already as the start of all of that. Right. Uh, the group had gathered with one purpose, to petition the aging Queen Elizabeth I, then a bewigged and painted woman of 66, to start up a company, quote, to venture in the pretended voyage to ye East Indies and other islands and countries thereabouts to make trade. So again, at the start, they were, it was looking to bring stuff into the into the into Britain. Right. So unlike the Levant Company, which had a fixed board of fifty-three tightly knit subscribers, the East oh sorry, the, the company was from the very first conceived as a joint stock corporation, open to all investors. Smythe and his associates had decided that because of the huge expenses and high risks involved, a trade so far remote cannot be managed but by a joint and united stock. Costs, after all, were astronomically high. The commodities they wished to buy were extremely expensive, and they were carried in huge ships which needed to be manned by large crews and protected by artillery masters and professional musket men. Moreover, even if everything went according to plan, there would be no return on investment for several years. The idea of a joint stock company was one of Tudor England's most brilliant and revolutionary innovations. The spark of the idea sprang from the flint of the medieval craft guilds, where merchants and manufacturers could pool their resources to undertake ventures none could afford to make individually. But the crucial difference in a joint stock company was that the latter could bring in passive investors who had the cash to subscribe to a project but were not themselves involved in the running of it. Such shares could be bought and sold by anyone, and their price could rise or fall depending on demand and success of the venture. So again, it's like taking what was initially a, a pretty good and just idea of people Pooling working resources. together to yeah. pool resources to probably survive and just thinking like, how can we, uh, how can we make money off this? Yeah. Cause like, again, like cooperation at some level is like just inherently human. Yeah. Right. Like just to make society go and things like that. And now you probably get people that are, well, you know, let's pull our, you know, let's put it together to try to make a buck. And then it gets more and more exploitative. Right. And then you get the fucking parasites that come in and say, Hey, take this large sum, you know, take this now, give me X percent on it. Right. And they don't do anything, but who is in the position to do that? And it's the same today, right? Like, you know, they're, they're, yeah. I think people try to, I mean, I think people try to frame stock markets as somewhat, somewhat of a democratization because theoretically like anybody can buy, but like not everybody can buy a fucking controlling portion or like a, a portion yeah, that I mean, you not, know, has a say, you know what I mean? And it's not just that. I mean, you know, they, when they talk about the economy and stocks going up, like what percentage of Americans actually participate in the stock market? I really it's got to be like, fucking small. I think it's like 40%. And like, it's, you know, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny percent of like who actually and like 30% of the 40% are guys that just have stock in like a 401k with their company. Probably. Yeah, sure. And like, they're just making enough to make a retirement. So yeah. you're talking about like, you know, a very small percentage of like large corporations and like individual in you know, very wealthy individuals that actually ha- hold stock in a meaningful way. So when we're talking about like the rise and fall of the stock market as like an economic indicator on its own, like it's just, we're talking about the rise and fall of like rich people's fortunes more than anything. Well, and you just look you know? at like, like GameStop, right? Yeah. And that shit last year. Some Who, people make a buck. Some people, a yeah, but people I mean, lost a shit a few, ton. A few people that don't participate typically in the stock market, were able to like game the system and make some money. And who cried about it? The rich fucking hedge funds. Absolutely. So anyway, 
A few decades earlier, in 1553, a previous generation of London merchants had begun the, pr had begun the process of founding the world's first chartered joint stock company, the Muscovy Company, or to give it its full glorious title, the mystery and company of merchant adventurers for the discovery of regions, dominions, islands, and places unknown. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> nerds, dude. We've got a way with words. <laughs> Such a company was one body corporate and politique. That is, it would be a corporation and so could have a legal identity and a form of corporate immortality that allowed it to transcend the deaths of individual shareholders in like manner, wrote the scholar William Blackstone, as the River Thames is still the same river, though parts which compose it are changing every instance. So again, you run into this thing where corporations are people, right? Yeah. But how many corporations get like a death sentence when they just really do something illegal? Not many. I mean, I guess you could argue like Enron did, I guess. Enron, yeah. But that's... The only one I can think of? Off the top of my head. Yeah. yeah that's like, and it was almost like, oh, we'll make an example out of this I mean, like, one. What happened to the banks when, all, when the mortgage shit collapsed? Nothing. Nothing. I mean, I was, yeah. For how much we hope we all had in Obama, I guess he just uh, dropped the fucking ball there. In retrospect, the rise of the company may seem almost inevitable, but that was not how it looked in 1599. For at its founding, few enterprises could have seemed less sure of success. At that time, England was a relatively impoverished, largely agricultural country, which had spent almost a century at war with itself over the most divisive subject of the time, religion. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, basically, for anybody that doesn't know, it's, it's the British and, and England get going, moving away from Catholicism right. and founding the Church of England. And all of that was because the king wanted a divorce. Is that... That's the origins of like Anglicanism. Is that? Yeah. 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 Because Anglicanism is like a, sp a very British specific sect of Protestantism, right? Yeah, it's, it's Protestantism. Yeah. yeah. In the course of this, in what seemed to many of its wisest mind as an act of willful self-harm, the English had unilaterally cut themselves off from the most powerful institution in Europe, the Catholic Church. Yeah. So turning themselves in the eyes of many Europeans into something of a pariah nation. As a result, isolated from their baffled neighbors, the English were forced to scour the globe for new markets and commercial openings further afield. And to do so, they had no competition but to use for the... No, sorry, no compunction but to use for the first time in history unbridled corporate violence. Yeah, so like he says like no choice, but there are like pretty significant proto-socialist movements like you talk about like the levelers or like the true levelers you know what i mean and again you know it's framing it as they had no choice but like there were people that looked to alternatives to you know exploitation of like the rest well, of the I world you know what i mean if you and want again, to give, it's a, it's if you minority, want to give them the benefit but, of the doubt i think what he's saying is the british had no choice but to go out and look for trade mm -hmm. if you just want to take like again take, if, the, take the context for granted that, yeah yeah no, and that's fair and there and then that move to them using this, as yeah. he says, unbridled corporate violence. So they took it further than what could have been a, you know, relatively just and and potentially fair to all parties involved, just way to trade. To now we're just going to take everything over and control it all. Yeah, the company had been authorized by its founding charter to wage war. That's in quotes, and had been using military and naval power 
to gain its ends since it boarded and captured a Portuguese vessel on its maiden voyage in 1602. So even if, so even if in, you know, Dalrymple's eyes, if you give, again, if you're giving him the benefit of the doubt, the British needed to trade. So they needed to go and venture out and trade. The, the East India Company, that was never their intention. Their intention was always, like it says in their charter, to wage war yeah. to get what they want. Yeah, to take markets yeah. by force if necessary, right? Yeah. So the maiden voyage was in 1602, but it was not until 1765 that the company ceased to resemble a conventional trading corporation dealing in silks and spices and became something altogether more unusual. In that year, which is 1765, in the Mughal fort of... Allahabad, the young Mughal Empire, Shah Alam, exiled from Delhi and defeated by the company troops, was forced into what we would now call an act of involuntary privatization. He was forced to issue an order to dismiss his own Mughal revenue officials in Bengal, Bihar, and Orissa, and replace them with a set of English traders appointed by Robert Clive, the new governor of Bengal. Oh, he's an asshole, that guy. I remember that yeah. guy from the book. Yeah, this is all in that book. Yeah. And the directors of the company, whom the document described as the high and mighty and chief of illustrious warriors, the English company. <laughs> cool. The collecting of Mughal taxes was, was henceforth subcontracted to a powerful multinational corporation whose revenue collecting operations were protected by its own private army. Within a few months, 250 company clerks backed by the military force of 20,000 locally recruited Indian soldiers had become the effective rulers of the richest Mughal provinces. An international corporation was, for the first time, transforming itself into an aggressive colonial power. So those Indian soldiers, I would, you know, th those would be the sepoys that we've talked right, about yep. in previous podcasts. So, using the looted wealth of Mughal Bengal, before the company was straddling the globe, almost single-handedly it reversed the balance of trade, which from Roman times on had led to continual drain of Western bullion eastward. The company ferried opium east to China and in due course fought the opium wars in order to seize an offshore base at Hong Kong and safeguard, safeguard its monopoly and narcotics. To the west it shipped Chinese tea to Massachusetts, where its dumping in Boston Harbor led to the American War of Independence. Indeed, one of the principal fears of the American patriots in the run-up to the war was that Parliament would unleash the company in the Americas to loot there as it had done in India. So, you know, again, it's saying, like, they took stuff that had been done forever and just put their own spin on it. Yeah. By 1803, when the company captured the Mughal capital of Delhi and within it the now sightless monarch Shah Alam, sitting blinded in his ruined palace, the company had trained up a private security force of about 200,000. Jesus. Twice the size of the British Army. And marshaled more firepower than any nation state in Asia. In just over 40 years, they had made themselves masters of almost all of the subcontinent, whose inhabitants numbered 50 to 60 million. Succeeding an empire where even minor provincial nabobs and governors ruled over vast areas, larger in both size and population than the biggest countries of Europe. Now almost all of India south of Delhi was then by then effectively ruled from a boardroom in the city of London. What honor is left to us, asked a Mughal official, when we have to take orders from a handful of traders who have not, let, not yet learned to wash their bottoms. <laughs> but, you know, a little shade at the Englishman. Yeah. And, and again, you know, I, I, as I said at the start, I was, I'd been writing a, a thing on Jamaica 
and that was to do more with the slave trade. And, and the reason I wanted to do this was like the slave trade was driven a lot by the, by the company. Um, you know, it talks about, I think there were like on the islands and on, on Jamaica, there were maybe 4,000 white, they call them planters, mm-hmm. um, plantation owners effectively. And there were like 60,000 slaves. Yeah. And so it goes into a manual that was written to handle slaves. And it just talks about the only way to manage these people is to make them live in a like perpetual sense of terror mm-hmm. because it's like numbers alone, they could have easily overthrown them. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, you, you've got to think India was the same situation. Absolutely. I mean, cause I remember reading that book and he's describing some of like the battles that took place between, you know, the company yeah, and, you know, I mean, there were different, I mean, obviously India at the time wasn't like unified in the sense that we think of it today, you know what I mean? But different different regional like factions mm-hmm. and the numbers were just insane. But like, it just, that lends itself to that kind of terror was just the entirely different, I think, technology that was widely available. You know yeah. what I mean? Like firepower. Yeah, and you want to talk about terror, like when the Sepoys re- revolted and I think 1850 or 1853, around, you know, around then, you know, like the British would like load dead, people into cannons and just blow them across the field just to like intimidate people yeah you know it was again just making these people live in a perpetual sense of fear well no i mean and i think that's the scary thing is that like a lot of times we kind of paint these events and things as like this is just like this blind shit happening but like the more i read about this stuff i think like into your point that they had manuals written i think these people had a really good idea of what they're doing. It wasn't just that they like stumbled into these methods. Like they yeah. knew what was going on. When we talked about how they basically took what they considered best practices from yeah, all their and different areas. And, and yeah. And I'm sure like the people in like, you know, later eras learned from, you know, what was effective about the East India company. Right. Right. But like to that point about like with the slave trade to America, I was reading, you know, I've, I've been reading slowly Howard Zinn's people's history of the United States and yeah. he gets into the era of the slave trade. And he says a big part of it, a, a big part of that, like to that point of like keeping these people subjugated was again, this complete disorientation, right? Mm-hmm. One, you know, through violence and then breaking because, you know, you're coming from a place where community is very much integral to people's lives. So it was very intentional in terms of like separating people from people that they'd known. Yes. And it's to create that state of subjugation through disorientation. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. sick fucks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They were pretty great. So we still talk about the British conquering India, but the phrase disguises a more sinister reality. For it was not the British government that began seizing chunks of India in the mid-18th century, but a dangerously unregulated private company headquartered in one small office, five windows wide in London, and managed in India by violent, ruthless, and mentally unstable corporate predator Robert Clive. India's transition to colonialism, in other words, took place under a for-profit corporation, which existed entirely for the purpose of enriching its investors. Yeah. Historians propose many reasons for the company's astonishing success. The fracturing of Mughal India into tiny competing states, the military edge of more advanced European soldiers, and the innovations in governance, taxation, and banking that allowed the company to raise vast sums of, sums of ready money at a moment's notice. For behind the scarlet uniforms and the Palladian palaces, the tiger shoots and the pokers at the at government house, lay the balance sheets of the company's accountants, 
that their ledgers laying out profit and loss and the company's fluctuating share price on the London Stock Exchange. Yet perhaps the most crucial factor of all was the support that the company enjoyed from the British Parliament. <laughs> the relationship grew... There it is. Yeah, more symbiotic through the 18th century until eventually it turned into what we might today call a public-private partnership. <laughs> Return nabobs such as Clive used their wealth to buy both MPs and parliamentary seats. In turn, Parliament backed the company with state power, the ships and soldiers that were needed when the rival French and British East India companies trained their guns on each other. That's why, like, I hear this, you hear this term, like, corptocracy thrown out, like, now, as if it's, like, some new fucking phenomenon. Yeah. It's not a new phenomenon. Yeah. You know, like, people look at, uh, you know, they look at Google today or, you know, like, the woke left elite companies or whatever the fuck these psychos call it, you know what I mean? And, like, fuck those companies. But, like, my point is that these are, this is not a new phenomenon. This has always been there. I mean, he brought up the examples of like, you know, we talked about Guatemala. We'll talk about Iran. Um, it's, it's, it's always been there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And like, again, to the point of like, Hey, just because the British East India company was the most successful. I'm sure if you looked at the French East India company or the Dutch East India company, like a similar story could be told. Right. One in terms of brutality and two in terms of the connections to the government. Yeah. Yeah, and again, it's like you said, Google, Facebook, yeah. Apple. It's just nothing new. Yeah. Okay. But the company always had two targets in its sights. One was the lands where its business was conducted, but the other was the country that gave it birth, as its lawyers and lobbyists and MP shareholders slowly and subtly worked to influence and subvert the legislation of parliament in its favor. So, you know... Not just the start of like colonialism and this, you know, spreading capitalism through imperialism. This also seems to be the start of lobbyists. Right? Yeah. And that's why, like, I think again, and I think we're going to get to this more, but it's just like, I keep saying it, but it's not unique. It's not an aberration in the context of the entire system. It's just an early indication of what the system is going to be. Yeah. Indeed, well, here we go. Indeed, the company probably invented corporate lobbying. In 1693, less than a century after its foundation, the company was discovered for the first time to be using its own shares for buying MPs, annually shelling out 1,200 pounds a year to prominent MPs and ministers. I don't know what that is today, but 1,200 pounds in 1693 is a lot a of money. A fuck ton of money. Yeah. The parliamentary investigation into this, the world's first corporate lobbying scandal, found the company guilty of bribery and insider trading and led to the impeachment of the Lord President of the Council and the imprisonment of the company's governor. So, I mean, I guess that's a little different and would be seen as positive now. <laughs> like, I'd be happy if people did that now. But, you know, I, I'm sure as time went on, that, that, was, that was the aberration. That was the right. thing that was different. You know? Yeah. Though other companies such as our friend Cecil Rhodes' British South Africa Company, mm. acted as Pied Piper in the march towards exploitation and empire, the company's conquest of India almost certainly remains the supreme act of corporate violence in history. For all the power wielded today by the largest corporations, whether Walmart or Google, they are tame beasts compared with the ravaging territorial appetites of the militarized East India Company. Yet if history shows anything, it is that the intimate dance between the state and the corporation, while the latter can be regulated, it will use all of its resources and power to resist. 
I'm kind of surprised this was written in the uh, Financial Times. Yeah. <laughs> the 400-year-old question of how to cope with the power and perils of large multi multinational corporations remains today unanswered. It is not clear how a nation-state, especially a fragile or impoverished one, can ad adequately protect itself and its citizens from corporate aggression. <laughs> no contemporary corporation... <laughs> No contemporary corporation could get away with, the duplicating, with duplicating the sheer military might of the company. But many have attempted to match its success at bending state power to their own ends. The biggest modern corporations run sophisticated lobbying operations like those of the East India Company, which, in the case of ExxonMobil, is, according to journalist Steve Cole, staffed by 20 former senators, yeah. representatives, legislative aides, and others under contract. So this goes into what we talked about earlier. Like all these guys, these senators just go work right. for private companies when they're done. They they make a shit ton of money. And yeah, and I get like that this guy and like I mean he's a great, you know, historian. Obviously, he's probably a liberal historian, you know yeah, what I mean, in his so. own way. And you know, that doesn't mean we shouldn't read them and understand them. I just I don't think he's, you know, cuz again, he's focusing on like the explicit violence of the company as it existed then. And he's, he, while he is acknowledging the ties to the government, he's not really, in my opinion, making the connection between, okay, it's basically the same. They've just gotten better at hiding like how explicit it is, you know? Yeah. Like that's all. Cause like, again, we've talked already about how violent it is. And again, we can, we've talked about how, there's different definitions of violence. Like just because you're not shooting sepoys out of cannons, like, well, you know, maybe you're just like sanctioning countries and starving kids. Yeah. You know? Well, and the other thing is, you know, he talks about how these, they couldn't get away with duplicating the sheer military might. So, you know, maybe they can't have an army as big as, bigger than the British army or the American army or whatever, but they can have Blackwater, like yeah. we were talking about over dinner. They can have private security and they do yep. and they have you know these companies they have stuff to protect their interests abroad and it's not and they can have know. the cia at you know their behest essentially <laughs> yeah okay thankfully however there is no exact modern equivalent so we've kind of talked about that corporations have frequently conspired to make weak governments fall but no modern corporation claims sovereignty over any nation neither not yet We'll see in a few years. <laughs> yeah. Neither ExxonMobil nor Shell possesses regiments of infantry, cavalry, and artillery, though both have a small army of private security guards. The latter, as Cole pointed out, earned in one year $228 billion in revenues, more than the gross domestic product of Norway. Had it been a country, it would have been the world's 21st largest economy. So this is Shell. Indeed, with such revenues flowing, and perhaps today the most powerful corporation, corporations do not need their own armies. They can rely on governments to protect their interests, guard them, and bail them out, just as the U.S. did, for example, with ExxonMobil in Iraq. As recent American adventures in Iraq have shown, our world is far from post-imperial and quite probably never will be. Instead, empire is transforming itself into forms of global power that use campaign contributions and commercial lobbying, multinational finance systems and global markets, corporate influence and the predictive data harvesting of the new surveillance capitalism rather than, or sometimes alongside, overt military conquest, occupation 
or direct economic domination to affect its ends. Okay, so he's acknowledging what we're talking about. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think, I, I mean, you know, based on the anarchy and everything else, I think he, he he's not completely naive to it all. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, I, I'm I guess sure I'm, he's, he's like of the liberal bend of he would like things to be more just, but he still wants, you know, capitalism I mean, still sweet. Yeah, he probably can't like envision like... Or he, he won't countenance or envision. And maybe I'm wrong, but like it doesn't seem like he would countenance an alternative. Yeah. You know. So this is the last paragraph. 420 years after its founding, with a corporate mogul sitting in the White House, attempting to use his dollars to buy whole nations, and with a former chief executive of ExxonMobil recently serving as Secretary of State, the story of the East India Company has never been more current. As Edward, first Baron Thurlow, remarked during the impeachment of East India Company Governor Warren Hastings, corporations have neither bodies to be punished nor souls to be condemned. They therefore do as they like. So just as a note, this was written in 2019. So, okay. you know, yeah, he's so talking he's, about Trump and... Yeah, right. Now he's got... Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's a, it's a interesting. I mean, the book is fantastic. You should read it. And I think it's important to understand the East India Company as kind of an indicator like I like in my view of the direction of capitalism right I just think it's important that we recognize that you know this is just and he does get at it how it's molded itself and changed itself to adapt with the times because to his point like no company at least in right now and in, in today couldn't be that overt with their military might again if things swing really harshly in like a gross militaristic national nationalist direction even more so than they already are maybe that changes and things like that so he is acknowledging that that stuff changes um i guess just one thing that i take from thinking about the east india company is you always hear about like with with defenders of capitalism and i don't want to paint this guy as necessarily that because i don't know i think that that's what he is but like it's like oh well this isn't capitalism Right. This isn't how it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And then the flip side, like I believe in like actually existing socialism. Right. Right. So like, you know, if a country is trying to be socialist, you know, you take into account the mistakes that they made, but like they're ongoing projects of trying like a new thing. Right. But like you have to take it for what it is, Mm -hmm. you know, except for fucking Pol Pot. Fuck that. That wasn't communism. (laughs) But um, my point is that this is capitalism this is what it is yeah this this is history has proven out that this is that this is what it is it's 500 years of proven violence and exploitation yeah right so like we know what it is now guys like it's not going to change right you know (laughs) yeah it's never going to be fair yeah so i mean so that's I, i thought that was a good introduction to the east india company and again, something that will be mentioned frequently through our podcasts. And, you know, I could probably do 15 just on them. But, uh, you know, I felt like as we're going to, this is a as this is a continuing thing about British imperialism, it was important to do kind of an introduction to them. So It is huge. I mean, it's, yeah. it's integral to it. I mean, they led to the gem of the empire or the yeah. crown of the empire, the crowning jewel, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Yep. But it is interesting. I mean, to your point, you could do like, there's, you know, like 100 episode podcasts on things like, you know, the age of Napoleon, right? You could do just, I mean, you could the do the British it. East India Company, right? Yeah. What's his like, name? 
you could do a, a bunch of podcasts on what, what was Clive's last Clive. Name? Yeah. Robert Clive. Right? Yeah, you could do could do podcasts just on that guy. I mean, obviously, Mr. Rhodes comes up a few times and will come up and frequently. Clive got like, didn't he get call, called in front of like parliament and like kind of censured by somebody trying to somewhat hold him accountable? But didn't yeah, but he, he still, still retire I mean, with like a really nice life and yeah. like in a stay out yeah. in the countryside? Like, like like that guy said, he I mean he bought himself a parliamentary seat, right? You know? I mean, yeah. God. And it's just like the guy that we covered in Emirates Star, you know, like he got blamed for the massacre, but he still went home and in basically honor. Um, and that's just something that's going to, it just always comes up. You well, know, look these, at our war criminals now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Nothing but war criminals. And like everybody loves fucking George Bush now because he's a never Trumper and he paints fucking dogs. Fuck off. He's a war criminal. Yeah, we were watching <laughs> Probably, I think I mentioned this on another podcast, but we were watching the news the other day and, you know, CNN's, I, I basically just rage watch this shit at night now. Um, you know, they were covering all the civilian casualties in Ukraine and how it's a, all war crimes. And I was like, I didn't see this during the Iraq war or Afghanistan. I didn't see them showing all the civilians we killed. Nope. So... Because it's for freedom, buddy. Yeah, and again, that that just that's just another corporate arm of imperialism is the media now. So absolutely, and that's the thing. Like, and I think we've talked about this before, but again, look at the class of people that benefit from imperialism, and also the people that you know benefit from selling you know views through the media. Billionaires own yeah. CNN, own Fox, own yeah. all this shit. They're all the same class of people. And like, however much you want to delineate between like, but guess what? There's like liberal, con there's liberal like parts of the ruling class and there's conservative parts of the ruling class. At the end of the day, they still have their interests in this shit. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. Well, that's it for that article. All right. Well, little intro on the uh, East India Company. And then I guess we'll talk about Jamaica at some point. Yeah, I, I, I've already written that, but uh, I just thought this was this was worth touching on before we got into that. For um, sure. But yeah, my next one, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the slave rebellion in Jamaica that led to uh, the British abolishing slavery. Yeah. So, lessons. East India Company, historically, pretty fucking awful, but not a capitalist aberration actually just capitalism. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thank you.